If you're in the book of Acts chapter 1, would you say amen? amen? Beginning at verse number 1, the Bible says this. It says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after that through the Holy Ghost, he had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many, and somebody say these next two words, infallible proofs. It means they had no question as to who he was. The proofs were infallible. They knew who this Jesus was. And being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but that they should wait for the promise. Somebody say the promise. But wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you've heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. I'm thankful for the baptism of the Holy Ghost today. Now, I haven't come before you today with, uh, with a very deep word or to preach pretty, but I feel a word of encouragement in the Holy Ghost today. And I want to preach to somebody, don't give up on the promise. Would you turn to somebody near you this morning and say, don't give up on the promise. Would you clap your hands to the Lord and you may be seated in the name of Jesus. We find in the scriptures that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, were among the first who discovered the empty tomb of Jesus. It was the third day and they had come with a certain level of expectation as to what they were going to find that day because the Bible tells us that they had brought with them ointments. They had come to anoint the body of the Messiah. They believed they knew what they were going to see when they got to the tomb that day. They believed they were going to come and they would find the body of the crucified Jesus and they had brought the required things so that they could anoint his body. But when they arrived at the tomb, they found something that they weren't quite expecting because they had expected to anoint the body of Jesus. But when they arrived at the tomb, they didn't find the body of Jesus. But instead, they found that it was happening exactly like Jesus had promised that it would happen. Because it was the third day and the tomb was empty. And it was in the midst of their shock and the fear at the sight before them that they bowed down their faces to the earth in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 5. And the angels that watched them come to the tomb with their shock, they said to them in verse number 6, they said, He is not here, but He is risen. Remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee. Luke 24 and verse 7 saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day he would rise again. And I love what the scripture says next in Luke 24 and verse number 8 when the Bible says that they remembered his words. 
Isn't it incredible how God can tell you exactly what he's about to do, but then when he does it, you look at it and say, oh, Lord, I didn't expect that to happen. God can tell you exactly how everything's about to play out, but when it finally does and when it happens the way he said it was going to happen, we still stand back and say, oh, my Lord. It actually happened the way that he said it was going to. It actually happened that there was no seal and there was no stone in this world that could prevent the word of God from coming to pass. Now, you might have come from a different kind of church background this morning, but I've been in some churches that when you walk in on the back wall, there's a figure of the cross and they have Jesus hanging on the cross. Well, you might notice something a little bit different about a Pentecostal church this morning because we have an image of the cross on the back wall, but the cross is empty. And I'd like to tell somebody today that the cross isn't the only thing that's empty. Because when they took his body off of that cross and they placed it in the tomb, they thought it was a done deal. They thought it was over. They thought that was going to be the end of the story. But they missed one very important thing. Because all the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus had promised some people, if you destroy this temple, on the third day I'm going to raise it up again. And there was no stone, there was no seal, there was no guards that could prevent the word of God from coming to pass it's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about it's almost like when Jesus says that you can go ahead and write it down you can go ahead and count on it because it's going to happen exactly the way that Jesus said it was going to happen and this was the beginning of the 40 days of infallible proofs Wherewith the Bible tells us that Jesus began to show himself to the men on the earth. And we find that he first appears to Peter and to the disciples. And Paul tells us something very interesting in 1 Corinthians 15. That after Jesus had shown himself to the disciples, Paul writes that Jesus then appeared to over 500 brethren at once. Somebody say 500. Jesus, this Jesus who is showing himself with infallible proofs, showed himself to the brethren and over 500 of them at one time. And this is the group of believers that Jesus is addressing in our opening text in Acts, the first chapter, when Jesus was assembled together with them and he began to give them some commandments. Now you have to understand something about the crowd that was assembled there that day that heard Jesus speak. That crowd knew exactly who this Jesus was. They understood that this Jesus was the same God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. They understood that this Jesus was the same God who spoke and mountains trembled under the majesty of his voice. They knew the God who said, let there be light and there was light. The God who said, let the earth bring forth trees and fruit. And barren trees began to bring forth fruit. This was the Jesus that was speaking to them that day. And understand this morning, before you can understand anything else that's written in this Bible, before you can understand one single word that is written in this book, you must understand a very simple principle from the book of Genesis in the first chapter. And that is simply that when God says it, it happens. There's no ifs, 
There's no ands. There's no questions. If God proclaims it, if God says it, you can go ahead and write it down. You can take it to the bank. You can bet your life on it. You can count on it with everything you have. Because when God starts to speak, it's going to happen exactly like he said it would happen. And this is the Jesus that begins to speak to the crowd that day. He says, stay here until the promise comes. Because not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Can you imagine how that conversation would have went over today? When Jesus says, wait for the promise to come. And Andrew elbows James and and asks, when when did he say that was going to come in by? Did did he give us a delivery date for, for that promise? Did he tell us when that was coming? Jesus, can we get a tracking number for that? Uh, we live in an Amazon Prime generation. And I am as maybe the most guilty offender here today. I am a big fan of Amazon Prime. But I, I wonder how many times in my life I've tried to squeeze Jesus onto an Amazon Prime delivery truck. God, I want to know how many stops away my breakthrough is. I love, I love that feature. You can open up the app and says, your package is five stops away. How many times do I ask God, how many, how many people do I have to watch get their breakthrough before my breakthrough shows up at my door? God, I want to know exactly when is it going to happen. I know you said it's going to happen, but God, I need to know when it happens. I'm trying to be patient over here, but if I've got to watch one more person get their breakthrough. I know you've never thought this. I know, I know you never have, but I've thought a couple times, if I have to watch one more person get their miracle... How many more people do I need to watch? I'm I'm rejoicing with them, but God, how many more people do I have to watch get their deliverance before mine finally shows up knocking on my door? How many times have I wished I could squeeze Jesus into an Amazon Prime truck? I wish I could get a tracking number for it. I wish I could know that it's going to come by no later than tomorrow night at 10 p.m. I want my delivery, and I want it now. Anybody ever felt that way? It's like Christmas all over again when Amazon comes, comes to your door. We, we receive a lot of packages for the church at our house, and we, ha- and we have somebody there probably every single day of the week. And we had one old boy knock on our door, and he hand us a package, and he just asked, he goes, what do you guys do? I said, I've been here every day this week. I said, well, we, we work for the church. He's like, oh, I was getting worried. But you, now you can judge me for this if you want to, but I have chased down a delivery truck in my life. <laughs> when my wife and I lived back at the parsonage, I, I promise you, if you ever want to go off grid, go to the parsonage. Because I can't tell you how many phone calls I've been on. Now, sir, we're here, but there's nobody here. Y'all at the church? Yep, we don't live at the church. Funnily enough, we live at the house right behind the church. And there was one day we had ordered a bunch of computer equipment for the office. And it said sometime between 12 and 10 p.m. Like, thanks for narrowing down the window for us. And so we were coming home from lunch. And I got a little notification at 11.58, mind you. It said your package was undeliverable because nobody was home. And I promise you, I looked up. I'm on 53rd Street. And I see the delivery truck. I said, do you see that? My wife said, yep. I said, hold on. And we... (laughs) We followed him all the way to the apartments, and I pulled out in front of him, and I'm pretty sure he thought he was about to be robbed. I said, I mean you no harm, but you've got my package, and I need that package. I I don't know if he filed that as theft or loss or whatever, but he gave me my packages. But that's not how Jesus operates. When Jesus is in the picture, sometimes you're going to have to wait 
on the promise. You're going to have to have a little bit of faith. You might have to endure some trials. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 and 31 that they that wait upon the Lord, what shall they do? They shall renew their strength. But it might require a little bit of waiting. And those who were gathered around the Mount of Olives that day, they they heard the commandment of God, but they didn't get a tracking number. They didn't get a delivery date. All they had was a promise and a place. They knew what was coming, and they knew where it was going to come, but they didn't know when. And Acts chapter 1 and 12 says that they returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now, a Sabbath day's journey is not a very long distance in terms of physical distance that you have to travail. But apparently this journey was long enough that some people's faith started wavering sometime in the journey. Because we know from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15 that the commandment was given to over 500 people. But how many people were in the upper room when the Holy Ghost was finally poured out? There's only 120. So the question is what happened to the other 380 people from when the promise was given and when the promise was poured out? I begin to wonder what, what that walk and what that journey looked like from the Mount Olivet to the upper room. Because somewhere along this journey, somebody remembered they were scheduled to work overtime and they didn't really have time for an impromptu prayer meeting. Somewhere along the journey, a mother realized that the Feast of Weeks was coming up in a few days and there were some preparations to be made at the house and and she really didn't have time for an impromptu prayer meeting. There were things that needed to be done. Somewhere along the journey, somebody started doubting whether or not the promise was actually going to show up the way that Jesus said it would. And scripture doesn't give us exactly what happened between Mount Olivet and the upper room. But we know that somewhere along the line 380 people gave up on the promise before they could receive it. Now I don't know what happens as you read the scripture but I like to get into it and try to walk around the room. And when I'm reading about this prayer meeting in the upper room I... I like to just try and see if I can look around the room and see what is happening. And I see the disciples and the brethren and Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's continuing in prayer. But for every brethren that I see that is earnestly contending, earnestly praying, I see one or two more get up, pack their belongings and give up. And say, well, if the promise was actually going to come, it would have happened by now. It's day one and we've been waiting, but it hasn't happened yet. It's day two in the upper room and we've been praying, but I've got some things I need to take care of at the house. It's day three and we've been praying, we've been waiting for the promise, but it still hasn't happened yet. Day four, day five, day six. and day, Six days doesn't sound like a long time to wait until you're the one in the middle of the season of waiting. Because when you're the one waiting on a promise... When you're the one waiting on a breakthrough, when you're the one in the middle of a trial, six days can seem like a lifetime to be going on and wondering every day, is today the day I'm going to get my breakthrough? Is today the day that the promise is going to show up? But it doesn't show up on day six. Day seven, another family gets their belongings together and they begin to head out the back door of the prayer meeting. And I like to just picture in my mind that Peter had posted himself up by the door so that every person that who gave up on the promise had to walk past somebody who was convinced without an ounce of doubt in their mind that the promise was coming. 
I like to paint the picture in my mind that there was an old seasoned saint sitting by the back doors so that anytime somebody got up and tried to give up, anytime somebody tried to walk out the back and just go ahead and throw in the towel, they could grab them by the arms and say, don't give up yet, baby. Don't give up yet. The promise is going to come. I know you can't see it, but I'm telling you, if you'll just hold on for a little longer, it's going to come. But day eight comes and the promise still isn't there. And another family packs their bags and heads out the door. But Peter grabs them and says, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. It's coming. They say, Peter, we've been waiting. We've been praying. But if God was going to bring the promise, if this was really going to happen like he said it would, surely it would have happened by now. Anybody ever heard this? You're wasting your time in that church. You're wasting your time going there every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, every Thursday night. You, you've been praying about this for an awful long time and it hasn't happened yet. You're just wasting your time. And you're looking around. You can't see the hand of God. Job said, I looked to my right. He wasn't there. I looked to my left. He hid himself. I looked before me, but he wasn't there. I looked behind him and I could not find him. When you're in that season of waiting, it's a lonely season. It can feel like you've been abandoned, like you've been forsaken. But I want to tell somebody in the Holy Ghost today that day nine in the upper room is not a good time to start questioning the promise. Day nine, you are too close to it now. You're too close to the miracle now. You're too close to the breakthrough now to start questioning whether or not you still believe the word of God. Day nine's not a good time to start questioning in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the season of waiting, in the middle of your questions. It's not a good time to still be trying to figure out if you believe the word of God. You've got to make up in your mind before you leave this house today that every promise that's written is for me. Every word in this book is for me. And I believe if he said it, it is going to come to pass. But I like to picture that Peter stood by that back door and everybody that tried to walk out had to walk past somebody who had a made-up mind that it's going to happen exactly like Jesus said that it would happen. And I, and I can imagine the conversation as another man grabs his family and tries to walk out the back door and tries to convince Peter, Peter, it's never going to happen. Peter, it's not on its way. Peter, if it was going to happen, it would have already happened by now. But there was something that man didn't know about Peter. You see, Peter was there in Matthew chapter 8 when the man with leprosy reached out his hands and Jesus said, Be thou cleansed. And immediately... The man was cleansed. Peter was there and he saw it happen. Peter was there in Mark chapter number 4 when the waves started rocking the boat a little bit. And the disciples started being afraid. And Peter was there when Jesus stepped on the helm of that ship. And Jesus said, peace. Be still. And Peter watched as the waves calmed, as the winds abated. You see, Peter was there in John chapter 11 when Lazarus had been laying up in the tomb for four days. And they said, surely by now he stinks. But Peter watched Jesus walk up to the face of that tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And Peter watched with his own eyes as he who is dead began to walk with a newness of life. Can I tell somebody this morning that you've come too late to convince Peter that it's not going to happen? You've come too late to convince Peter because he's seen it with his own eyes when Jesus says it. 
When Jesus says it, it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how long I have to wait. It doesn't matter how many trials. It doesn't matter how many struggles come my way. I'm already convinced that when Jesus starts speaking, things start changing. Things start happening when Jesus starts speaking. Peter wasn't going to give up on the promise. You can walk out if you want to. You can give up if you want to. But what if the promise comes tomorrow? What if the breakthrough you've been praying for comes tomorrow? What if that 200 soul revival comes tomorrow? I've heard it ever since I came to this church that Bishop Bingham would get up behind the pulpit and preach that somebody's going to give up five minutes before the return of the Lord. I want to tell you, what if it comes tomorrow? What if the eastern sky split tomorrow? What if we wake up in the morning to the sound of Gabriel blowing that trumpet? I'm telling somebody, don't give up on it yet. He's coming. He's coming. And I believe it's going to happen just the way that he said. It would happen. But can I bring this thing back into first gear for a couple minutes and help somebody? Day nine. It's not a good time to start questioning whether you believe the promise. Do you know what happens when you start questioning whether you believe the promise? When you start questioning whether or not you believe the word of God and you believe the promise, you start worrying about things that God never meant for you to worry about. When you start questioning whether or not you believe the word of God, you start being afraid of things that you've already been promised protection from. You start investing your time into things that you have no business investing your time into. You start building things that you have no business being building. But it starts happening when you begin to question whether or not you believe the promise. We watch this process play out right before us in the scripture in the book of Genesis with the story of the flood. Is everybody familiar with the story of the flood? It's an incredible story to all three of you who know it. It's an awesome story. God comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I'm about to destroy the wickedness off the face of the earth. I'm going to open up the heavens and it's going to rain. And Noah's sitting there scratching his head thinking, hold on a second. What, what exactly is this rain? You said rain? Well, God, what is rain? I've never seen anything like that before. Noah, let me put this in simple terms for you. Water is going to fall from the sky. And now I know some, if our, some of our young people would have been there, they would have said, okay, boomer. What, whatever, whatever you say, wow, water from the sky. You, you think so, huh? That's, that's something. I, I've never seen anything like that before. But God says, Noah, listen, I know, I know you've never seen anything like it. I know it's hard for you to wrap your mind around this thing I'm calling rain. But Noah, you need to build a boat to save your family. I want you to get the picture this morning how incredible it is that Noah just took God at his word. He'd never seen rain. He'd never seen water fall from the sky. He'd probably never even seen a boat. Why do you think God had to go into such uh, strict dimensions and instructions on how to build the boat? Noah's like, I don't know what you're talking about, God. But Noah took God at his word. There was something inside of him that stirred up and said, even though I don't quite understand it, even though I can't quite wrap my mind around it, I believe that if God said it's going to happen, even if I can't quite picture it, if God said rain is coming, I believe it's going to happen. Preacher, let, let, let me get this straight. You're telling me that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
The dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. You're telling me that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Listen, I know you've never seen anything like the rapture. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around what it's going to look like when the dead are raised first and we are caught up with them. I know it's a hard thing to picture in your mind. But I'm looking for somebody today who would have a Peter kind of spirit. Who would have a Noah kind of spirit. And say, even though I don't quite understand it. Even though I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. I don't know when the trumpet's going to sound. I believe that if God said he's coming for his church, he's going to come back for his church. I believe that if he said he's coming for a spotless bride, I want to be ready. And I want to be in that number. I can't picture it. I don't understand it. But if he said he's coming, I want to be ready for his return. So God tells Noah, I know you've never seen rain before, but it's going to happen. Tell your neighbor, it's going to happen. And it did. It happened exactly like God said that it would happen. And they were on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. And when they come off the ark, Noah and all his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, we find another promise given to them. In Genesis chapter 9, and the Bible uses this language over and over again. It, it says, after the flood, this happens. And this happened after the flood. And this is after the flood in Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 8. God spake to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore. Somebody say no more. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. And neither shall there anymore be a flood to destroy the earth. Noah, I gave you a promise that there was coming a flood and I kept my word. Now, Noah, I'm giving you another promise that there will never be another flood that destroys the earth. And he said, you know what? I'll do one better. I'm not only going to give you the promise, but I will give you a token of my promise. And you go on to read in that chapter that the Lord sets the rainbow up in the sky. The rainbow belongs to God, by the way, in case you, in case you wanted to know where that came from. I wish just for once in his sorry stinking life Satan could come up with something on his own and quit taking the things of God and perverting the things of God and causing confusion and causing chaos to roam the hearts and minds of man. The rainbow was already established by God a long time ago, buddy. Get your hands off it. So God says, every time it rains, I'm going to put this bow in the sky. Well, why God? So every time, now listen to this. Listen how powerful this is. I'm going to put this in the sky. When is it going to happen? It's only going to happen when it rains. Why? Because I want every time that it rains, I want you to be reminded of my promise. Every time you hear the thunder, I don't want you being afraid. I don't want fear start to start gripping your heart, wondering if this is the next flood. Noah, every time it rains, I'm putting my promise in the sky so that you remember the word of God. Every time the thunder rolls, every time... The rain comes on the horizon. I don't want you being afraid, Noah. 
Because I've given you my word that never again. Somebody say never again. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. But it's a short trip from Genesis chapter 9 to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 9, God promises never again to flood the earth. And in Genesis chapter 11, man starts building a tower called Babel. And we've preached and we've taught the mess out of the story of the Tower of Babel. That when you lift up your heart and try to ascend to the heavens and be like God, bad things happen. It's, it's not a good thing to allow a haughty spirit to try to ascend yourself to the seat of where God is supposed to sit. But there's actually a little bit of humor in this story because in one verse the Bible says that man was building a tower to the heavens. And the very next verse it says that God came down. To see the tower that man built. Man thought they built this great majestic thing that was in the heavens. But God still had to come down to see it. Because his ways are above our ways. And his throne is heaven. But earth is just his footstool. The stories seem completely disconnected. There's a flood. And then there's the tower of Babel. But I want to challenge your thinking this morning. Because there are more connections in the story than meets the eye at first glance. The story of the Tower of Babel opens like this in Genesis chapter 11. And verse number 1. It says that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. Understand today that verse 3 in this story is not a throwaway verse. There are no wasted words in the scripture. There are no extra words in the Bible. If it's in there, it's in there for a reason and for a purpose. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But the ability to create bricks and figuring out how to burn them in the fire to solidify them was one of the greatest technological achievements of early mankind. It opened up a new method of building that they could build greater and more strong and sturdier structures than had ever been possible in the history of humanity. This was a technological breakthrough. And when you begin to study archaeology, you find that among the discoveries of early Mesopotamia, that the creation of mud bricks and of fire bricks was this amazing breakthrough. It's almost like the Bible doesn't inform us about history, but history informs us about what happened in the Bible. And as you begin to look through history at these structures that man would make out of mud brick and fired brick, you find that archaeologists have given them the name ziggurat. Somebody say ziggurat. It's just a fun word, ziggurat. They, you find them all over the earth. But there's something so very interesting about these structures because they were always about more than just reaching into the heavens. When you begin to study ziggurats in history, you find that there's always two components. I know we're in first gear, but if I spit this to the fifth row, I'm afraid somebody's going to miss it this morning. There's always two components to a ziggurat. There's the spiritual aspect when man is trying to reach to the gods, but there's also a physical aspect where man is trying to distance himself from the earth. I quote from Odyssey Archaeology. He says, We know of at least 32 ziggurats in Mesopotamia, 
and western Iran. Typically, they are built out of a core of mud brick and an outer skin of fired brick. What did the Bible say? They brought to them bricks and they put them in the fire. And they set them in bitumen mortar. Why? To protect it against flood damage. A big part of the relationship between the ancient people and their gods was pure show business. Sumerian priests put on a good show. And where better to stage the show than on a high platform where the whole population could see it. But on a practical level, the ziggurat protected the temple from the violent floods that periodically devastated the land. I quote from Angie Cordic when she says, Built in ancient Mesopotamia, a ziggurat is a type of massive stone structure resembling pyramids and featuring terrace levels, accessible only by way of the stairways. And here's the two parts. It traditionally symbolizes a link between the gods and humankind, but it also served practically as a shelter from floods. Herodotus said this, At the top of each ziggurat was a shrine, Although none of these shrines have survived, one practical function of the ziggurats was a high place where the priests could escape rising waters that annually inundated lowlands and occasionally flooded for hundreds of kilometers. Are you picking up on the two aspects of those structures built out of mud brick and fire brick? They wanted to reach to the heavens, but they also wanted to protect themselves from floods. And somewhere between Genesis chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 11, mankind started getting really worried about the potentiality for the next flood. Somewhere between when God gave the promise in Genesis 9 and Genesis 11 when they said, Go to, let us take brick and let us build us a structure that we may distance ourselves from the earth. Somewhere between Genesis 9 and 11, mankind began to question whether they really believed the promise. Of God. So I ask you this morning what happened between Genesis 9 and Genesis 11? With the fear of, of sounding too facetious this morning, I want to tell you that between Genesis 9 and 11 is Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, we find the genealogy of the generations from Noah to those men who built the tower in Babel. And it's always so easy to skip over genealogies when we get to them in our yearly reading plan. Don't nod right now, I can see you. It's so easy to skip over them. But they're there for a reason. There's no wasted words in the scripture. And when you begin to look at genealogies, you will often find a powerful truth just waiting for you to uncover it. And Genesis 10 begins... To go through the genealogies and we start with a man named Noah. Somebody say Noah. Noah's name literally means to rest. That's what the name Noah means. It means to rest. Noah, the Bible says, was a man who walked with God. And if I could say it like this to you this morning, that he was a man who rested in the promise of God. His name meant to rest. We start with Noah, the man who rested in the promise of God. But then you get to the first generation after the flood, you find Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem meaning simply the name, Japheth meaning to be persuaded in a thing. So you could read their names like this, to simply be persuaded in the name. And I hope, hope today that there are some people in this place who are simply persuaded in the name of Jesus. 
But the name Shem has been used throughout history as Hashem to refer to the mighty God. You could read the first generation after the promise as this simply being persuaded in the promise. But you get to the second generation after the flood, you find men like Canaan, which means to be humble. And you find Gomer, which means to come to an end. Perhaps it was the second generation after the flood where the humility of man came to an end. But then you get to the third generation after the flood and we find a man by the name of Ramah. And Ramah simply means to tremble. His name means to tremble. If you look up the root word of his name, it means at thunder. Somewhere between a man who rested in the promise of God, we got from Noah to Ramah to where every time it thundered, he trembled. We got to a generation that every time the rain came on the horizon and every time the clouds began to roll in, they trembled at the thought of another flood. They were a generation of people who knew what God said but really didn't know if they believed it. I know God said he would never leave me or forsake me, but I don't know if I really believe it. I know God said he would be with me till the end of the earth, but I really don't know if I believe it. I know God said he would never destroy the earth again by another flood, but I don't really know if I believe it. The first generation rested in the promise of God. But how long does it take for mankind to start trembling every time it thunders? To start saying, I really don't know if I, if I believe what this word says. And when you start questioning if you believe the promise, you start worrying about things God never meant for you to worry about. I wonder how many builders, as they began to build that great structure, laid awake, sleepless at night, wondering, is tonight going to be the night where another flood comes and wipes us out? Is this going to be the day where God finally goes back on his word. Every time it thundered, they were afraid. Every time the rain came, anxiety gripped their hearts. Is this the day where God's promise is proven wrong? Well, there's a reason that as Jesus began to describe the end times, that he said in Luke chapter 21 and 26, he said, men's hearts would fail them for what? Men's hearts would fail them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. We live today in a generation that questions the validity of the word of God. Maybe your parents went to church. Maybe your grandparents went to church. Maybe the first generation believed the promise. Maybe even the second generation believed the promise. But you haven't figured out whether or not you really believe if the word of God is really true. You really are still trying to figure out if God said it, if you believe it. You're still trying to release control over something that you've been worrying about in your life and place it into the hands of God. God never intended for those men to worry about another flood. He never meant for them to live in fear and live in anxiety. Somewhere along the line, somebody stopped believing the word of God. Somebody started trembling at things that you're not supposed to be trembling at. Somebody started worrying about things that God never meant for you to worry about. And you start grabbing control of it and saying, well, I'm going to get myself out of this one. I'm going to build a structure to protect from the flood. Who needs the promise of God when I can just do it myself? Let me tell you what happens when you do that. You lay up awake at night wondering, did I prepare enough? Did I do enough? 
You lay in your bed restless, wondering if tomorrow is going to be the day that wipes you out at your knees. You wonder if you've done everything you could, and you're just waiting for life to take you out. And all the while, God is saying, I never meant for you to worry about that. Why are you worrying about that? Why is that plaguing your mind? Why is that plaguing your heart? If you would just believe what I told you, you wouldn't be up at night. You wouldn't be worrying about things that I told you you never would have to worry about again. As I tried to lay down and sleep this weekend, I felt the weight of the service began begin to rest on me and I got up and began to pace my living room and I asked the Lord I said God would you allow me to be sensitive to what's going to be in this room on Sunday morning and before I could get back to the other side of the room the Holy Ghost fell in the early hours of the morning and I began to weep and I wish I had the words this morning to describe to you what I saw but I saw as it were I saw somebody's mind I don't know how to describe it other than that but I saw somebody laying down in bed. They were curled up in the fetal position. And I could see their mind. It looked like a whirlwind. So, and as I watched their mind go round and round, I saw these three things begin to orbit that mind. And I understood that it was fear, it was worry, and it was anxiety that was cycling this whirlwind in their mind. And I, if I have ever, I don't claim to know much other than Christ and Him crucified, but I know that I'm walking in the Holy Ghost this morning when I tell you that somebody in this room today has had some sleepless nights this week. Somebody has been laid up in your bed late at night wondering when everything was going to fall apart wondering why things haven't turned around yet wondering if it's still even worth it to go to church wondering if it's still even worth it to get your kids out of bed and to get them in church clothes and to drag them to the house of the lord because you've been waiting and it hasn't happened yet you've been looking for your breakthrough but it hasn't happened yet and fear and anxiety and worry has been keeping you up at night telling you your breakthrough's not coming it's never going to turn around for you it's never going to happen for you but I've just come simply to preach to somebody this morning do not give up on the promise because God's given you some promises in this word that he will never leave you and he'll never forsake you if you take your hands off of it if you'd put it into the hand of God I promise you it's going to be okay I promise you that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose Just to know, thus saith the Lord. As I began to pace the sanctuary last night, I asked God, what is it that you would have me to bring to your people tomorrow? And he simply said, you can tell them that they can trust me. I want to tell you this morning that if you've been laying awake at night and fear and anxiety has been attacking your mind and you can't seem to shut down the whirlwind in your mind, I want to tell you, you can take God at his word. He will give you a peace that passes understanding. The peace that can keep your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. If I'm touching anybody today, if this word has touched anybody today, I, I just wish that you would find a place at this altar and you would just surrender it today. Say, God, I'm going to stop building the tower. God, I'm going to stop laying bricks upon bricks. I'm going to stop going to the kiln. I'm tired of worrying about things that you told me. I didn't have to worry about. 
I found a promise written in this word that said he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The righteous has never been seen begging for bread. There is a promise that is extended to you today that if you will take your hands off of it and you'll place it into the hands of a loving God and a loving Savior that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. When the weight that's on your shoulders becomes too much for you to bear, would you put it in his, in his hands? Don't give up that he'll take it. Don't give up on the promise that his burden is light. Don't give up on the thought that you can have restful nights. Don't give up on the thought that he can step in when there seems to be no way. Don't give up on the promise today that even when you can't see it, he's still working. Even when it doesn't make sense to you, he's got his hands in it. He's got his hands on your life. He's with you and he will never forsake you. Would you reach over and pray for somebody today? Would you reach over and encourage somebody in the Lord? His promise still stands. His faithfulness is still great. You don't have to worry about it today. Because he is faithful. Because God is not a man that he should lie. But he will do what he has promised to do. Would you lift your voice to that God today?